Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. On today's episode, we talk to Allegra Love, an immigration lawyer who runs Santa Fe Dreamers Project. Then we talk to Christine Henderson with Equal Justice USA about the case of Aramis Ayala, the first African-American state attorney of Florida. She was removed from a case by Governor Rick Scott because she refused to seek the death penalty, which is fully within her prosecutorial discretion. Interestingly enough, the same week he removed her, something critics say he lacks the authority to do, another Florida state attorney decided she would not be prosecuting any of the people involved in the death of Darren Rainey, an African-American inmate locked in a shower whose water supply was controlled by the guards. The water was 180 degrees. He had burns on over 90% of his body and his skin fell off at the touch. And yet, the state prosecutor's office is not prosecuting a single guard involved in the case. Make sure you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Halber Show to hear extra bonus goodies, including our extended interview with Allegra Love, who shares some tips on how undocumented people can legally protect themselves, as well as how others can support them. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also find me at Katie Helps on Twitter at Katie Helps, letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And find Gabe at Gabe underscore Pacheco. Have a question, want to recommend a guest? Use the hashtag Katie Help Show. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S, H-O-W. That's Katie Help Show. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and I'm joined by Gabe Pacheco. And we're really excited to announce that our next live taping will be April 12th at the Brooklyn Commons, which is 388 Atlantic Avenue. And our guest will be Matt Carp, historian of the U.S. Civil War era and its connections with the broader 19th century world. He received his Ph.D. in history from the University of Pennsylvania and joined the Princeton faculty in 2013. His first book, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy, published by Harvard, explores the relationship between American slavery and American power in the decades before the Civil War. He's also very swole. Okay. <laughs> okay. So he, he's been uh, lifting the weights. Yeah. He's too fast, too furious. Oh, my God. Honestly, we will get, if we just put up this image of Matt Carp, we will have a full house. Hey, everybody, you got to come to the show. Come to the live show. Uh, I, I love it because it's the only time I get to see the fans. So, um, Gabe uh, is we, very skeptical. I'm always skeptical. I feel like I'm just throwing my voice out there into the void. But at the live shows, uh, we're, it's always packed. Make sure you show up early. Uh, we start the live taping at 7 p.m. They are electrifying. So we are really excited to talk to you. Allegra Love, she began her career at Santa Fe for Public Schools in 2005 as a bilingual elementary school teacher and followed her passion for working with immigrants to law school. After graduating from the University of New Mexico School of Law, she came to work for the Adelante program of Santa Fe Public Schools, where she founded the Santa Fe Dreamers Project. She volunteers extensively both in her community and elsewhere for organizations like the Santa Fe Youth Commission, No More Deaths, and New Mexico Dreamers in Action. Most recently, she's worked to defend Central American women and children detained on the U.S. border. So, Allegra, what are some of the things that you feel like people need to know about that they're not hearing about? I think a lot of people have deportation on the brain right now because you know, the Trump administration has made such a big deal about um, their deportation plans and how important it is that we deport people. And I think that it causes a bunch of drama in communities. But I think what it does is it, it, it sort of like misses the point of where all the exciting thing is happening involving immigrants in this country, which is, you know, immigrants start businesses faster than U.S. citizens. So like in my city where I live, Santa Fe, New Mexico, like, we had something like three times as many business licenses taken out by immigrants than citizens a couple of years ago. I mean, you're talking about like how that strengthens our economy and how I work with dreamers and my dreamer clients. A couple of years ago, we did a survey in Santa Fe Public Schools. Um, we had about a 65, maybe 67 percent graduation rate in our schools. The dreamers I worked with were graduating at a 96 percent rate from our, our high school. And so this is a really exciting thing. These are kids who, against all odds, are like defying understanding of what it means to be at risk in our schools. And they're like getting the job done and they're going into our community colleges. We have in New Mexico, like one in every like 10 tech jobs or something or medical jobs. We don't have a high school graduate to fill. Like we don't have someone to fill those positions. So I'm excited that we're putting our 
immigrant kids through high school and into community college where they can start becoming like bilingual workers who can fill those positions mm-hmm. in our state. This is all like the really exciting thing that's going on with immigrants in this country. How do you, though, balance the kind of positive good things that immigrants are doing without neglecting the hardships that they are going through? Right. Um, it's a really hard position to be in right now to be an immigrant. They're the target. They're super vulnerable. They're the target of a lot of hate, a lot of blame, and also these new enforcement priorities in the country, right, with ICE and the Trump administration. And so we have to take that really seriously. And so we're, you know, I mean, we're doing Know Your Rights trainings to survive law enforcement encounters. We're helping people make family plans. We're screening people as fast as possible so that we can get them into um, immigration programs that can protect them, stuff like that, like the dreamer stuff. And like the question of what reform looks like is really complicated, but I can tell you where it starts. Mm-hmm. And the real reform in this country is going to start when we stop needing to punish people for being migrants or for migrating or having moved. Like, listen, I'm not trying to say that we need to that like I'm not trying to advocate that people break the law, right? Like, it's a problem that all my clients are in the country without permission. But it's a problem that can that can be addressed in many different ways that don't require like dehumanizing right. things or, or or tearing a family apart or destroying a life that they built here in this country. There's ways that we can address the illegality of what has happened that doesn't require completely devastating punishment. Like a proportionate. Yeah, a proportionate response to what's happened. And also acknowledge maybe a proportionate response should also factor in all the contribution and the economic engine that that Mexican immigration has been in the last two decades, you know? Like, when we're deciding how we're going to punish these people, can we also acknowledge how much they've done? And when you come from a town like me, the immigrants build the homes. They run our tourism industry. They... They create an immense amount of taxes and gross receipts for our city. Like, they are contributing. So maybe we can deduct a little bit about the insane moral judgment right. we want to have on them. And we you're talking about some of the good things that they've brought to us. You're talking about undocumented workers, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think Americans are mostly in agreement that as long as it was done legally, they don't care. Right. What's upsetting for me is most people, when they utter that sentence, don't understand what it means to do immigration legally. They have an idea of what legal immigration looks like, and they have no idea how complicated, expensive, sometimes impossible it is. And they're really quick to be like, oh, you've made a terrible decision by choosing to do this illegally without understanding any of the factors that go into it and how difficult immigration can be. Or understanding what the United States government did to make their immigration so necessary. Can you speak about that a bit? And because I know that you're working on the border and you work with Central American sure. women and children. And that's right. a story that I think is really important to be told how, you know, it's not like these people uh, exist in a vacuum and they're like, oh, I feel like traveling today. I'm going to go check out the U.S. So I work with women and children from the Northern Triangle of Central America. And so that's El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And those countries are in, I mean, they're in utter collapse right now. They're, I mean, El Salvador is the most violent place in the world that you could possibly live. It's got the highest murder rate in the world. And they're just randomly murdering young young people. Why? Why is it so uh, violent in El Salvador right now? There's a trans that there's two there's two warring gangs right now that have taken over the country. The rule of law has collapsed, and two gangs, the Marasava Trucha and the Manavia Siocho, are like battling for um, control. And of are those gangs uh, from El Salvador originally? Leading well, question. Well, they're from the U.S. <laughs> right. Right. So this is a major this is a major point that Katie just brought up. These gangs were originally basically started in LA and I think on the East coast of DC mm-hmm. essentially to protect Central Americans to protect themselves from other gangs. At, so there was a huge exodus from Salvador and Guatemala in the eighties and all these young Central American immigrants found themselves in these cities and then found themselves in the prisons of these cities. And they, these gangs basically formed in the streets and prisons of LA as a form of protection against different, you know, Aryan Brotherhood. Um, yeah, like 
Mexican gangs and stuff like that, which I'm not trying to condone what happened, but, but I mean, violence is horrible no matter what the context is. But then what happened is Clinton, like, evacuated, Bill Clinton evacuated our jails of all these gangsters back into Guatemala and Salvador after these countries had been ripped apart. No social fabric, no social structure. Right after the Civil War, sent all these people back basically into, like, an incubator for for these gangs to become really powerful. And so these gangs that in the 90s were just street-level gangs now, 20 years later, have become basically like the de facto like government of these countries. So they learned, they, they got the franchise formula, they got the secret sauce formula down, uh, Pat, here in L.A. and in D.C., and then, they, and then uh, it got exported back to the villages of El Salvador? That's the story that I've been told. Wow. I, they learned it from watching us, right? <laughs> kind of. Not to mention the, the, the hand we had in the... The Civil Wars down there in the eighties too. Right, like it's like like Contras, whole cyclical thing. Right, uh, we've had assassination of Archbishop Romero. Romero, right, right. The Cold War. We actually had Greg Grandin on. We got to have him back, but he lays it. He really lays it out. All the things that we did to contribute to this massive instability. And and now I kind of forget what the original question was. (laughs) But what we're doing is we're now these folks are women and children especially are fleeing this region to come back into the United States because they just they cannot possibly live there, um, and the conditions of violence are so strong people are like preemptively leaving before like one of their kids gets murdered or something like that. We essentially we've built up this concept of the immigrant as being like the Mexican who's trying to get through a wall that we're missing. That Mexican migration right now is at a net a negative net negative. Like we are not seeing any sort of we're seeing a negative change in mm. Mexican migration right now. People crossing the border in our Central Americans who are fleeing violence and fleeing just completely unstable living conditions. What does this mean in terms of like our immigration policy? I know someone from El Salvador, uh like a family from El Salvador, who the parents are United States citizens, but they have an adult daughter who is living in El Salvador. They by law are allowed to put in paperwork for her to become a US citizen, right? Like, she's a daughter of a U.S. citizen. They can put the petition in. The problem is right now is that you put a petition in like that, and I'm, like, I'm just sort of, like, looking up the travel bulletins right now, but it's something, like, from El Salvador for an adult kid of a U.S. citizen. The wait right now is, like, 13 years. And, and that's because we have all, like, our immigration system so backed up that the waiting list for visas that you're legally entitled to are so long. So you're saying to someone, like, a woman a young woman in a country where femicide has the highest rate in the world who needs to flee right now. And she's saying, the lawyer's saying, yeah, we can get her here legally in 13 years. Yeah. So people are like really quick to say like, you know, she had a choice to come right. legally or illegally. And I'm like, did she? Right. Not really. Like, what would you do in that situation? Are we really calling that a choice or can we say like, let's give you a light punishment for what you did and not give you, the, your punishment for that choice being sending you back into the murderous place you fled. Right, and they've also already gone through something traumatic, right? Again, it's not like a walk in the park. I mean, it's like by very nature of what they've done, they've right. gone through something. But, you know, I think... People hate moving. Yeah, exactly. They got it. Yeah, I yeah. think that that's another thing that, like, people don't understand about migrants or refugees. Like, it's like, who wants to leave their home? Exactly. Oh, right. I'm so... Like, yeah, some people do. But, like, most people don't. They love the smells, the sounds, the comfort, the memories, the feelings. They love their homes. There's, like, a great poem you should read. It's by, like, Worsen Shire called Home, which describes, like, no one leaves, like, like how no one leaves their home unless they have to. People want to be in their homes, especially Central American women and children. They don't want to be here. They want to be in their homes. So their home's no longer their home. It's no longer a safe place to be. It no longer looks like the place that they loved and the place that, that, was, that was their home. But we also don't want to lose sight of the fact that the story of immigration throughout our history has been about innovation, about cultures mixing, about creating our country and building our country. Our Nobel Prize last year, like the American Nobel Prize winners, every single person besides Bob Dylan was a, was foreign born. Every American who was awarded the national the Nobel Prize. That's the story of immigrants in our country right now. And so, 
like, yes, we're asking people to stand in front of our immigrants, right? Put stand between them and law enforcement, but we're also asking them to get behind them too. And say, if this person's worth defending, if if you're saying that this person's worth defending from deportation, they're also worth creating scholarships so they can get through school. You know, putting them into the kind of programs that can get them into our workforce and working helping them buy homes, helping them start businesses. That's just as important. I think it's very important to acknowledge that there there are a lot of successful immigrants, undocumented workers, people who achieve the American dream. But I also think it's like our respect of undocumented people can't be contingent on their being successful entrepreneurs. So how do we kind of both emphasize that, but also kind of just have a basic level of humanity where if you're not that, it's okay still. Yeah, and that's like a huge problem, right? And I'm not sure how to approach that except incrementally, Mm. which is to say, like, look, can we, like, this is how it's working with the dreamers, right? Because one of my whole problems with the dreamers is I I think dreamers are amazing. I think they're incredible. But I also know that, like, a kid who entered the country in 2009 doesn't technically qualify as a dreamer. Yet we say, dreamers are heroes, they're wonderful. You are still this, like, undocumented criminal, right? We can't do that. We can't have these strict interpretations of what qualifies you as being worth it and who doesn't. But one of the interesting things about dreamers are is I think a lot of Americans have acculturated to the idea of it. Mm -hmm. And now they're able to look a ring out and say like, well, maybe this kind of person is not so bad too. So I think that it's hard to ask people to do everything all at the same time. But I think that we can incrementally start seeing people as who they are, sort of like ring by ring. So I agree, like, I don't want someone to have to be a successful business person or a college graduate to feel like they they are worth being in this country. But I think that we can use those people as an example and then say, like, now let's look at their brother. Let's right. look at their partner. Let's and, and say, like, like, and to sort of acculturate ourselves to this idea that we have nothing to fear about immigrants in our community. In fact, we have everything to gain from the moment we decide to embrace them and use them as resources and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's actually very smart because obviously like Gabe and I and our listeners are super like anti-neoliberal. You know, we we, we were like cheering when you brought up Bill Clinton and all the terrible things <laughs> yeah, that he did. Like, ah! uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever that sound is, like- but... But but I also think it's important to be realist, right? And and when I say realist, I don't mean like what the neoliberals say when they say realist, which no. is like dismantling the welfare state. But I'm what you just hit on is like a very good strategy where you kind of you start by breaking down or debunking these myths. And people have these myths of the American dream and the capitalist story, success story and social mobility. Right. And if you kind of show, well, actually, not all undocumented people or people who came here, I don't even like to say illegally, but without without the the, the proper, proper paperwork. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. that they are not all. In fact, not most of them are not this at all. Uh, like whatever parasites or criminals and if you show like this successful restaurant owner then i think you're right that that's that's one step closer that makes it that much easier to just be like look this is a human being maybe they're Uh even maybe they're unemployed just right now just like lots of white native born or native born of whatever background are unemployed too yeah i mean one picture i really like to paint for people when they start talking about the success issue is like what does success look like for a parent? Mm. And and that's sometimes like, no, maybe a parent's success is not going to be they started a business, they graduated college, or they invented an app, whatever. But maybe success for a new immigrant parent means that they haven't changed homes in five years. Or a mother, a single mother, is able to leave someone who's abusing her because she's economically stable enough. And, like, respect I live in a state where we can't hardly take care of our children. We're so bad at it. So, so seeing an immigrant success as being able to raise a healthy, well-adjusted child is a huge success in this state. And so I like to, like, paint success as that, too. As someone who, like, maybe for the first five years they're working, they might have to have their kids on Medicaid. Maybe their their kids are off Medicaid by the, t- the time they're, like, 15, you know. Like, like finding ways to define success by, by, like, where someone starts and where they're getting to and the kind of kids that they're raising as well. Because there's not a whole lot that you can do to disrupt federal law enforcement. The only thing we can do is continue to support the growth and the progress of these folks in our community and continue to believe in the possibility of them being a part of our community and making our towns and cities 
our country stronger because that's how we're going to get to the point where we're ready for the real reform that we need. Okay, that's interesting because I, I feel like everyone is saying, like, we can stop we can stop these deportations, not one more. Um, we got to shut it down, shut down what Trump is doing over my dead body or whatever. Um, yeah. And you're kind of saying the opposite. Look, I'm going to I'm an immigration lawyer. I love my community. I'm going to do everything I possibly can that's in my toolbox to stop people from being deported. The fact of the matter is, there might we might come to a point where we, those tools don't exist, and we're gonna like if Trump wants to deport all these folks and he wants to commit the money and the infrastructure to it. I see. I'm not convinced that he has the money or the infrastructure mm. or the actual will of the nation to do what it's going to take. But let's say he does. There's not a whole lot like a lawyer like me is going to be able to do to stand in the way of that. So what can I do is that I can continue to try and create, to make immigrants as essential to my economy and essential to my town and essential to my community as possible. So that, like, that's what I mean. Like the true form of sanctuary is going to be having people be completely integral to our community and our economy. Like we might not be able to stop deportations, but that's going to push the American like consciousness about immigration to the place where we're ready for reform. I just keep thinking, well, how about universal programs, right? Like Medicare for all or free college tuition, right? Like there, there's so much stigmatizing that happens because these things are means tested. I just wonder how much that should also be pursued, not at kind of the expense. I mean, I think there's this false narrative that like, that liberals have where it's like, oh, why are you appealing to and catering to white workers and throwing people of color or undocumented people under the bus? I mean, yeah, of course, certain populations need targeted advocacy or organizing, but like things like universal health care or free college tuition are things that help everyone. Everybody. Well, and that's what, like, when we try and talk about how we message this and not, and, and like, it's because we want to, I want white workers to understand that, that they have everything to gain from integrating immigrants into our society. They're going to see job improvements. They're going to see their economy. They're going to see more jobs. Like, this is how it works. If it's done thoughtfully, like, their liberation is tied to the liberation of immigrants as well. Oh, my God. are so clapping for you right now even though you can't hear it yeah sorry right but like and that's why they need to take this this need to punish and be angry away and so that they can participate in crafting the kind of policy that's going to let them take full advantage of the resource that is sitting right at our feet and at our gates so you do not agree with the hot take that every time bernie sanders talks to a white coal miner that 17,000 people of color and lgbtq people lose their wings i went to ivy league school i live in this liberal pocket of northern new mexico i'm from central wyoming and there's uh it's really conservative there and i know these folks and they're not bad people they have big hearts and I think that the moment we say that people can't change, that they can't love, that they don't have compassion, we're going to lose it all. We're going to find ourselves back in the same position we found ourselves this year, where we have like deep, deep, angry divisions between people, mm-hmm. right? And, and so like, yeah, I believe a white coal miner is capable of learning, loving, and changing. But we also have to be capable of the same thing as well and admit there's things we need to change about ourselves. Right. It's like liberals have empathy for, as they should, like undocumented workers, right? And they chastise conservatives for not being empathetic towards these people. But then they have this kind of like punishing attitude that you were describing um, that some people have or is kind of articulated in the farm, in the in the policies of the United States. They have that towards the working class and they don't even they they just use white working class as shorthand as if all of the members of the working class are white first of all but yeah there is this like total like punitive um i think myopic view that's very vindictive and vengeful and it's like i just don't understand what organizer actually thinks it's a bad idea to engage people who are potential allies who are being screwed over by the same people 
as a lot of the undocumented workers and to like highlight that they have not to sound corny, um, but like to highlight the common interests. I just don't understand it. And I think half the time people just don't get it and half the time they do get it and they're just opposed to these more progressive programs and they just want to stop them from happening. So they pretend it's about like. Uh, but you're talking yeah. about literally the riskiest kind of organizing that there is. What do you mean? Which isn't to say, I, like, I find organized, I'm not a professional organizer. I find professional organizers, like, impressive. I can't imagine how to do their jobs. And so, like, I don't want to go too far down the line of, like, criticizing anyone. This is a deeply confusing time, and I think anyone... We'll do the criticizing. I mean, I'm, I'm proud worry. of anyone who's trying. You guys can do the criticizing. Yeah. The point is... But I'm also criticizing not organizers. I'm criticizing like the hot take people, the hot takes people. Trying to include and organize with a group that like you feel in opposition to is the absolutely riskiest way to organize is because you you might, it's hard work, right? And it, and it, you might not make any progress and you might have people like legitimately challenge what you're doing. And it's, it's really, really, I mean, it's really, really hard. And so that's, I think that's why we don't see as much of that. It's just truly hard and it's advanced organizing. That's like what like masters do, like Martin Luther King and stuff like that. It, it, that's like master organizing. And I, a lot of us who are now either amateurs like me or people who are just this, like either appointing themselves as organizers or just like earnestly or authentically joining in, we don't have the skills yet to get to that point. Right. I mean... I guess I'm I'm um I'm more referring to the kind of narrative like we see Frank Rich wrote a piece and this is kind of stupid because who cares you're we're talking about like you're a lawyer and we're talking about organizing and legal strategies but there is this liberal kind of tendency to say I don't want to talk to these people and I'm not saying that like like undocumented people need to go talk to coal miners at all but it's more yeah. the, the idea that they're that they these people need to be engaged and there needs to be outreach because like it or not like. And there's nothing incompatible between doing that and also organizing around the rights of undocumented people. No. I think that the white sort of like working class that you're describing has to pay specific attention to this issue because they are being lied to. Right. And I don't know that someone is, I don't know if someone from like my community say, directly reaching out to explain this to them as like intelligent, sane, smart people who make rational decisions every day based on their experience in the world, right? Like, these folks are rational. I just don't... I think they're being, like, really, really lied to that this issue matters to their well-being, and it doesn't. It's low-hanging fruit, and they're being told, if we just deport all these immigrants, we you're, you're going to start seeing, like, more jobs, and this is not true. I mean, find an economist who can explain that to me. But I, And I'd like to see caring organizers from my side of the thing explaining that because once that once trump loses that working class he loses right well they have all the power in terms of what policy they're going to be going forward with this stuff right which is why i mean i i guess the the elephant in the room or the or the independent uh, animal in the room is the bernie sanders thing right i mean i i i think that that kind of reaching out and that articulation of politics is so necessary right now if we don't if sanders at all don't talk to these people there is a vacuum and who fills that vacuum but donald trump people need to be explaining to these people that they are being lied to that their quality of life will not be better if people are deported but um what when you said your community you said people from my community what how do you define your community what is your community well i mean i live in santa fe i'm new mexican um but i'm talking about so yes people in my town because we're this like sort of tiny city up here in northern New Mexico that gets this issue right (laughs) we get it really hard and um so we protect our immigrants in this city and we support them to thrive we also mean my community like people who fight deportations immigration lawyers united we dream people who are advocates for reform people who are advocates for the defense of immigrants like this community i mean that's what i'm talking about i'm not like really connected with like the democratic party or anything right neither way we just like sanders basically (laughs) Um. new mexico it it feels sometimes really separated from the the nation's politics and we focus a lot on what's going on around us in our in our own community Mm, local yeah yeah and is love your last name or is that a messaging 
idea. No, that's my last yeah. name. Yeah. Um, just checking. Yeah. It's a pretty good one. Um, you know, they actually, apparently they take legal cases. They'll take that into account, like that loving case, you know, the anti, anti-miscegenation lawsuit that like, you know, struck down that being illegal. They, the part of the mm-hmm. reason they went with that particular couple is because their last name. Random, oh, wow. random thing. Maybe I'll one day be like a famous Supreme Court plaintiff because yeah, of my last name. Exactly. Love versus That'd the United cool. States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Fe is also 500 years old, right? Yeah. Uh, 400 and like 17 years old or something. Oh, 407. Like we just had our quatrocentennial like five to 10 years ago. I can't remember. And the were, you, were you there for that? For the founding? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm 435 yeah, just, years old. Oh, no, I meant um, uh, no, for, yeah. for the celebration. But, yes, you're a vampire. I, I love think it. so. Santa Fe really throws down hard every year for its, its celebrating itself. Um, we have, like, huge fiestas celebrating the um, history and culture and the conquest of New Mexico. It's frightening and awesome and weird and unlike anywhere else in the United States. So I was definitely here. Um, we got, we burn a giant puppet in the park. That's like, I don't know. Ah, Zozobra. Hi, Zozobra. Yeah. Wow. Gabe, you're like a New Mexican, yeah. uh, ex, New Mexpert. I know. Uh, he is a New Mexpert. Yeah. Right. Just, uh, just, I remember passing through Santa Fe and, uh, was, um, was astounded that, uh, my, I felt like the American history books, the United States history books weren't telling me the whole story. No. When I got right. to a city uh, on uh, in North America within our borders that's um, so much older than than everything else that we learned about the you know thirteen colonies and all that. Yeah. So, and anything else that you want to talk about? You feel like people don't know um, any myths that you want to shatter? Um, to hear the rest of our interview with Allegra, including tips on what precisely you can do to protect yourself if you're undocumented, and also be in solidarity with undocumented workers. Also, what's going on with civil disobedience and other insights into the movement, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, and we'll be posting the rest of the interview as bonus content, and it's really good. Now we're happy to talk to Christine Henderson, who is a national organizer with Equal Justice USA, a national organization working to transform the justice system from one that harms to one that heals. We talked to Christine about Aramis Ayala, who is the first ever African-American state's attorney in Florida's history. She announced that she would not seek the death penalty in any murder cases, including in a case of a police officer's killing. This sparked the very Republican Rick Scott to remove her from the case which critics claim he lacks the authority to do. Hello, this is Christine. Hi, Christine. It's Katie Halper. Hi, Katie. How are you? Good, thanks. Thank you so much for talking to me. Can you just tell listeners what is going on with this case with uh, the state's prosecutor being removed? Last week, Wednesday, uh, State Attorney Ayala um, you know, made an announcement um, that she would not seek death on any cases. Um, as long as she is the state attorney, which was really a huge kind of movement and um, uh, for kind of real criminal justice reform. And, you know, she was very clear, right, with the decision that it's about policy, right, of the death penalty and how the research demonstrates that it, it doesn't really provide public safety, which is what people usually kind of use as the mass to this is the main reason why, um, you know, we support the death penalty, and it's for the it's for the victims and the victims' families. It's what the victims want. Um, but you know, when you really start to look at the problems with the death penalty, you start to really realize that it's actually very expensive, it's error prone, and it's really unjustly applied. Um, so when she she made this announcement, you know, obviously it caused an uproar, which Governor Scott himself kind of stepped in and took the case from her. Um, and assigned it to another uh, state attorney, a prosecutor. And so it, it, this is really something that has never been done. So it, it's really caused a lot of not just local and state, but even national attention. Can you talk to us about the legal authority or the lack thereof that Governor Rick Scott has in removing state attorney, state's attorney Ayala? I mean, I think it's a it's a huge overreach. And, um, you know, I know there was a, 
a statement and letter put out that had signatures of over 100 legal leaders, you know, that included uh, Supreme Court judges, retired Supreme Court judges, lead prosecutors saying that Governor Scott has overreached. 119 judges, prosecutors and law professors signed letter questioning Scott's removal of Ayala from death penalty case. More than 100 legal experts issued a letter today expressing concern with Governor Rick Scott's removal of state attorney, state's attorney Aramis Ayala from the Markeith Lloyd case. Ayala said she would not pursue the death penalty, a stance with which the governor disagreed. The 119 signatories include two former Florida Supreme Court justices, four retired state Supreme Court justices, more than two dozen current or former state and federal prosecutors, and approximately 90 law professors. The judge's lawyers and professors' opinion is that Scott's move infringes, infringes on the independence of prosecutors, exceeds his authority, undermines the right of orange Australia voters, and sets a dangerous precedent. Quote, your executive orders that seek to remove state attorney Ayala from this position in the Lloyd case, absent any showing that her decision is violative of the state or federal constitution, compromises the prosecutorial independence a criminal justice system demands. The letter states, Quote, your removal of state attorney Ayala compromises Floridians' right to the service of their elected leaders. Floridians in the Ninth Judicial Circuit elected state attorney Ayala because she represents their local values and concerns. End quote. The letter concludes, the, this action sets a dangerous precedent. The governor picking and choosing how criminal cases are prosecuted, charged, or handled in local matters is troubling as a matter of policy and practice. Indeed, there appears to be no precedent in Florida for this type of of use of power. You know, as a prosecutor, and this is one of the things I work heavily on within the communities, is prosecutors have the discretion to not choose death on any case. It's up to them. They can literally say, we think that life without parole is just enough, of, uh, you know, a punishment right. outside of taking someone's life. She will not seek death, but she will co- continue to, to uphold the law was within her discretion. It is just really kind of Interesting to see that, you know, Governor Scott kind of flew in immediately on this and decided to take her off. Right. Because this case involves the execution of a police officer. And what what we see uh, historically, I mean, basically people have this attitude where and I don't think this is in this case is not necessarily about the guilt or innocence. But people do have this attitude where even when there isn't the guilt there, when there is innocence, someone has to pay for it. Right. People do not like the politics of looking weak on or soft on law and order, as they say. Right. Even though it's very easy to make the case, which you did, that like you're actually harder or or you're better on on law and order when you're reallocating the resources better, right? You're not you're not making anyone yeah. safer when you when you're going to execute someone as opposed to put them in jail for life and you're taking away resources from investigating and solving crimes as you said. But I just think it's so rich and so ironic and it would be funny if it weren't terrible that the same week that this decision was uh, made and that Rick Scott pounced and removed the attorney from this case, you have state's attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle deciding she will not be prosecuting prison guards who literally boiled a black schizophrenic prisoner to death in a shower that they controlled the temperatures of. His skin fell off um, because he was burned alive. And, I mean, the corruption and dishonesty is incredible. And they, these the people who, who work at this prison, are to, they're sadists. Like, they would do this thing called air trays where they would, like, give prisoners uh, trays with no food on it. They had a, one prisoner attack another prisoner. They bribed a prisoner to do that. And I just think it's really interesting that she totally condones killing a, a prisoner. Not a single one of them is going to be charged with anything. And I know that's not your issue, um, and this isn't the death penalty case, but that is such a stark contrast. Pretty perfect, because that is what uh, justice in Florida looks like. Uh, you you decide not to seek the death penalty, even though that's within your legal right to decide, and you are removed by the governor. You decide not to prosecute prison guards for burning a man to death. That's A-OK. Governor Rick Scott has no problem with that. Uh, these are really awful people. Uh, Ayala is the first African-American state's attorney in Florida's history. Yes. And another government employee, the assistant finance director of the Seminola County Clerk's Office, Stan McCullers, wrote on Facebook, quote, maybe she should get the death penalty. She should be tarred and feathered if not hung from a tree. End quote. And at Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman points out the Orlando Sentinel reports that from 1877 to 1950, more than 331 black people were lynched by whites in Florida, the most lynchings per capita of any U.S. state. So this is kind of an uh, extremely disturbing and also kind of meta situation where 
you have an African-American attorney who is saying she won't seek the death penalty. And of course, one of the main reasons that people oppose the death penalty, as they should, besides it being, I think, barbaric and immoral and not an effective deterrent, is it's so racist and classist and arbitrarily applied. And so it's just really interesting to see this racist backlash to this woman. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It took someone with a lot of courage to do what she did. You know, she really did her research. Like she said when she was she, she made her announcement, she did her research and she really wanted to make sure that her office would help to would help with resources. It would be a better tool in her office to use in terms of funding, right? Rather than kind of waste all this taxpayer money on chasing a death penalty case. Right. When I say chasing a death penalty case, there's no guarantee that at the end of the process that the families will even uh, receive that death penalty, you know, because it's a long and and it's a dreary process. Um, And appeals. Yeah, you know, sentencing, uh, the sentencing here, and then the appeals process here, and then you always have to be dragged back to court. Some families are are, are dealing with, uh, you know, this process 15, 20, 30 years, you know, and at and a lot of them are committed to, to, to life, you know, life without the possibility of parole. So she felt that she could definitely use those resources um, in her office to really kind of look at other tools that can actually help the victims and the victims' families. We have so many unsolved cases, mm-hmm. right? Not enough time, not enough money is being solved, them, not enough time, not enough money is being funded. Community groups, people who are who have gone through trauma, there's no resources, right? It was it, it was shocking to see the attacks that she received for making this decision. And I understand everyone does not see eye to eye when it comes to the death penalty because people have their own kind of, you know, morality, you know, towards a specific thing. Some people have their own feelings, you know, you know, uh, eye for an eye. You know, at the end of the day, you know, when you kind of see that, that the death penalty has so many different issues within itself, right? Within the fact that Florida, we have been in limbo for the last two years. Uh, We've been knocked down. Uh, We've been struck down twice by not even just the U.S. Supreme Court, but the Florida Supreme Court, calling our our death penalty kind of unconstitutional because we were, were, um, you know, unconstitutionally sentencing people to death because we didn't have unanimous jury. You know, um, Florida has the most number of exonerees um, on the national level, 26 exonerees. I mean... Uh, for a state where you can have one person could accidentally be sent to death, I think there's a problem with that. But yet we lead the nation nationally, you know, um, with the most people who have been exonerated from death row. It, it really takes a, a person to step back and say, wait a minute, let's evaluate this. And throughout all these processes, what are the victims actually going through? What are the victims being, uh, you know, told? Like they're being told, like, this is the, this is the best thing we can do uh, to help you and your family, but yet we drag them through years of, of back and forth appeals, uh, you know, with no kind of, there's, it's an uncertainty. There's no guarantee right. that you're going to get this. And even when they, they may get uh, a death sentence, then that person, you know, obviously comes back to back to back to back to back to court, and they're reliving this trauma over right. and over. How is that, that fair? And also, not every family wants the death penalty. It's a really long and grueling process if they even want that in the first place, right? Not everyone seeks that kind of revenge or bloodlust or whatever. No. Yeah, exactly. The police edge of this is that, once again, there's a rush to protect those and forget about the others. Um, a murder victim family member um, who I've worked with personally in the community in Jacksonville, Florida, Darlene Farah, who also has received kind of a little bit of national attention because of her her story. Her daughter was murdered, and the young man that killed her daughter actually had a history of just being failed by the system. He was in the system as a child. He, he, he lived in group a group home, never placed in a foster home. Um, he just really had a cycle of just never having anyone to really show him real love or support. And she herself felt that it wasn't fair. You know, she told me that the system had failed him. Mm-hmm. The state failed him. And she didn't support taking his life, even though he, he took her daughter's life. Right. And she also said it's not fair for her and her family to go through the process of being dragged into court for years. She didn't want that. She fought the state attorney in Jacksonville. It gained national attention. And she herself had reached out to Governor Scott's office on several occasions to step in saying, I don't want the death penalty on this case. I I want my family to have 
uh, immediate closure, and I don't support taking this young man's life. She told me Governor Scott's office never responded. And she said it really, it really kind of shows where his heart is and who he really cares for. Because as a grieving mother who was reaching out to his office, while she's fighting her local state attorney, to, to not, not to say let the guy get off, give him life of without the possibility of parole. Nothing. Never got a response. Nothing. Wow. And that is such an indication of what these people are motivated by, right? Like if, if Rick Scott really cared about victims, family members, he wouldn't do that. But it's a political tool. They like to look like they're hard on law and order. And it's so this is like astounding to me. The fact that you have people whose daughters or brothers or husbands or wives or parents or sons, that those people can have the compassion and also the realization that it's neither productive nor fair to kill someone. The fact that this mother was able to see that this person had been failed by the system and that there are things that we could do and we could invest in things that would prevent people like him from turning out the way he did. How come these people can see it, the ones who lost their their family members, and yet the governor, who's supposed to be a rational actor and objective and law-abiding, can't see it? Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's mind-boggling because these are also the same people that put you into power. I'm not surprised yeah. that lots of people support the death penalty for their for the people who've killed their relatives. I'm more like, wow, the fact that there are people whose relatives have been killed and they can see that the death penalty doesn't make sense. I'm not I'm not judging family members who want their their family members murderers um, to be executed. I'm not I don't I'm not judging them. I'm judging the the governor for not being yeah. able to or politicians really like. You know, if you care about the law, you should care that not just that it's inhumane, like I'm against the death penalty, even if if we always knew 100 percent that the person was guilty, I'm still against it. But I can separate that from saying, you know what, even if I were for the death penalty in theory, I'd have to oppose it because the way it's applied, it's classist, it's racist, innocent people are killed. Also, what's so frustrating is that, like you you referred to all these exonerations, right? So yeah, what people yeah. who defend the death penalty say is, oh, look, the system uh, fixes itself. We don't need to worry about outlawing the death penalty or capital punishment because, look, it's working. And when people are innocent, they're exonerated. The problem is we don't know how many innocent people have been killed. We only know about the people who are exonerated because they were exonerated. And as you know, yeah. people do not have the resources to put into discovering or investigating whether someone was innocent or not because they have innocent people still on death row who they need to release. They can't afford those to allocate those resources into cases where the person's not even alive. Yeah, and it's it's crazy that we're playing like a game of Russian roulette with people's lives. Oh, I know. Conservatives love talking about erring on the side of life, the sanctity of life. Why don't we err on the side of not killing someone? Again, it's not the choice is not the death penalty or like a paid vacation to Paris. It's it's a death yeah. penalty or or life in jail with no chances of parole you can get. What can people do to support state's attorney uh, Yala? The community has been flooding her with love and support. We ask people, you know, if you want to show support, reach out to her, to her office. People have been calling her office to thank her, sending her office emails, thanking her for her leadership, asking folks to support the movement in terms of stand standing by her. Uh, we will stand by her. We stood by her when she made the announcement. We will stand by her as she goes through the back and forth in fighting for what she believes is right. We will stand by her on, on the community. We will stand by her on the state level. We will stand by her on the national level. By the way, I have to share this with you. I don't know if you know about this, but uh, Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, again, the state's attorney who is not prosecuting the men who the prison guards and officials who burnt a schizophrenic African-American prisoner to death in a shower. But here's an interesting story about her. Turns out, uh, speaking of Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, she has two, she's twin, she, she has two twins, okay? One is Justin Rundle and one is Evan Rundle. Those are, I don't know why that makes me laugh. Evan Rundle and his twin brother Justin have been arrested before. Evan Rundle was arrested in 2000 when he was 17 for allegedly breaking into the Mast Academy, his high school. In 2002, Justin Rundle was arrested when he tried to board a flight to Puerto Rico with marijuana in his pocket with his mother and aunt. A ceramic pipe and three grams of suspected marijuana was detected in Rundle's pocket. The charges were thrown out after he completed a pretrial diversion program. In 2001, he was also charged with driving under the influence and careless driving after he lost control of a car registered to his mother and crashed into a ditch. Uh, that's interesting. So basically, he is in his mother's car. He crashed into a ditch and nothing happens to him. Um, and so he's then allowed to board a flight, attempt to board a flight with marijuana. Um, 
the son of Miami Dade top prosecutor was uh, was arrested Thursday for allegedly trying to steal a car. A Shell gas station attendant told Pinecrest police he saw Evan Carlos Rundle, 22, son of Miami Dade state attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle, apparently tried to hotwire a customer's car early Thursday morning. According to police report, an officer found Rundle near the gas station and the attendant identified him. At the time, police said Rundle was intoxicated, stumbling as he walked. He was arrested on burglary and criminal mischief charges. So just so we know, this woman who's protecting police also protected her son, not surprisingly. Uh, sorry, yeah. just the hypocrisy again, the utter hypocrisy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, Christine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And um, we stand by State Attorney Ayala. Um, the community stands by State Attorney Ayala. Faith leaders in Florida stand by State Attorney Ayala. Orlando stands by State Attorney Ayala. And Florida stands by her. Great. And is there a, a website people should go to or anything? Yes. If people are interested in finding out more and also supporting, we'll also on our website, equaljusticeejusa.org, uh, we will be updating and keeping people abreast of what's happening. Um, also, if there's any kind of mobilizing or a movement, we'll also be sharing it through our website. Great. Thanks so much. Bye, Christine. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Here's a great FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions, that Catherine Fernandez-Rundle set up on her website. Accuracy and transparency have long been the hallmark of our office. That's a lie. We will continue to openly communicate with our community on important issues in response to our establishing a hotline and based on questions and comments to our office regarding the investigation of the in-custody death of Darren Rainey. We have created the following list of frequently asked questions. Okay, that's great. When you have frequently asked questions, that's how corrupt you are about uh, the way you administer justice and, and deal with the murder of a prisoner is that you actually it's such an egregious case you have frequently asked questions within um this she announced this on friday that they wouldn't be prosecuting so you know in a couple within a couple of days they're already frequently asked questions because that's how deplorable and what a miscarriage of justice this is but she's a real deplorable person okay question the state attorney did not did not bring criminal charges against anyone in the death of mr rainey what was the state attorney's role in reviewing the case Answer: The role of the U.S. state attorney of the state attorney in this investigation and conducting this review is limited to determining whether a criminal violation of Florida law has occurred, whether any person may be held criminally responsible, and whether such criminal responsibility can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. The state attorney does not establish agency policy, procedures, or training requirements, nor does the state attorney have any responsibility for determining disciplinary action or pursuing civil litigation in these matters. In other words, given the applicable law, the state attorney's role is to determine whether the actions of the corrections officers constitute a criminal act that can be proven beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice was provided all the information gathered in the investigation. Their role is to determine whether any action for civil rights violations can be brought. Additionally, there are civil remedies available to the families and other interested parties. There are administrative remedies available through other agencies. Okay, this is good news, guys. The, the good news is that you have recourse to other agencies. When your loved one is burned in the shower, uh, boiled to death uh, by water that was found to be at 160 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 40 degrees higher than the legal limit that you're allowed to use, um, the good news is you will not get justice from the state's attorney. Um, but you can maybe file a report and they are happy to set up a hotline and they'll even give you, uh, they have a great Q and a, uh, uh, set up for, for us. So that's great. Uh, that's, that is, you know, that is law, the law that is lady justice. That is blind lady justice. Um, question was Darren Rainey thrown into a prison shower at the Dade correctional institution answer. Darren Rainey suffered from mental illness. Okay, let's just note, that's an interesting segue. If I were grading a paper, I used to teach history, if I were grading an essay and someone wrote that, um, you know, had had a question at the beginning of the paper, was was Darren Rainey thrown into a prison shower at the Dade Correctional Institution? And then the response was, Darren Rainey suffered from mental illness. I would say that that's a non sequitur. Darren Rainey suffered from mental illness. He defecated in his cell and smeared feces all over himself and his cell. He willingly walked out of his cell and was escorted by correctional officers to the shower to wash feces off his body. Rainey walked out of the cell on his own, which was captured on video, available on our website. Wait a second. Sorry. The guy did not 
on his own walk out of his cell. But that also doesn't matter because the guy is clearly mentally ill. He smeared feces on himself. This is uh, this is like a very disgusting thing to talk about. And it, I, I'm not trying to be sh- to shock people here, but it's really important that listen to the question. The question is whether he was thrown into a prison shower at the Dade Correctional Institution. And the answer is that he suffered mental illness and smeared feces all over himself. That doesn't actually answer the question. Um, and of course he was taken by guards. You think the guards were like, do you want to do this or not? It's up to you. It's totally up to you. Or you can stay in your cell with smeared feces all over yourself. I mean, also, I'm not, I'm not saying they should have let him do that. That's a health risk. Clearly the guy should not have been in jail. He was also, you know what his crime was, was cocaine. Oh, you know what? I wish Darren Rainey had, oh, this is unfortunate. If Darren Rainey had been, uh, traveling with Catherine Fernandez Rundle, then he wouldn't have gone to jail probably if he had tried to sneak like cocaine onto that flight. He should have just hung out with Catherine Fernandez Rundle and her son because the son was like barely got a, a slap on the wrist for pot. Of course, cocaine is more serious, but um, I'm not sure I need a mentally ill schizophrenic guy behind bars for cocaine. Uh, call me crazy. Okay, so let's see what other total lies and um, bullshit fabrications and other dodges they do. Question, um, was the water turned up to 180 degrees and was Mr. Rainey scalded or burned over 90% of his body? Sorry, I said 160. It was 180 degrees, which is um, 60 degrees over the legal limit. Okay, was the water turned up to 180 degrees and was Mr. Rainey scalded or burned over 90% of his body? Was the water turned up to 180 degrees and was Mr. Rainey scalded or burned over 90% of his body? Answer, according to the medical examiner, Mr. Rainey had no burns of any kind on his body. Further, if the water had been 180 degrees and Mr. Rainey was under that water, there would have been second degree or first degree blisters or burns on his body, especially on his feet. There were no blisters or burns anywhere on his body. That's interesting because multiple witnesses said that his skin fell off and another prisoner said that he had to clean up the shower and found a chunk of flesh. So, again... We're supposed to believe that none of the witnesses who are inmates are at all credible, um, but the prison guards are credible, as if they don't have an alternative motive. Um, quite, okay, so, all right, question. Was Mr. Rainey left alone in the shower for two full hours? Answer, while Mr. Rainey was in the shower room for approximately one and a half hours, he was periodically checked on by corrections officers. By the way, that's true, and that it was during that time period that witnesses uh, recall hearing him scream, let me out, I can't take no more. And uh, the prison guards, you know, responded by mocking him and saying, how's your shower? Um, Question, how large is the shower room and how far does the water stream reach within the room? Answer, there are photographs contained in the report and also as attachments to the report. They are readily available on our website. The general dimensions of the shower room are as follows. It is nine feet tall, approximately three feet feet wide and approximately nine and a half feet long because of where the water stream Stream enters the shower. As seen in the photos, Mr. Rainey was able to stand away from the stream of water and remain dry for the majority of the time he was in the shower. But, end quote, okay, that's the answer. The thing that sucks is when it's 180 degrees, uh, it doesn't really matter if you're not in the in the stream of water, you'll still be boiled to death. Question, is it true that when Mr. Rainey's body was removed from the shower, nurses and other personnel said there were burns on his bodies? Answer, yes. And that is what appeared to be based on visible reddish areas on his chest and extremities. In fact, according to the medical examiner, this was a result of skin slippage, quote, uh, parentheses, skin coming off, and parentheses, and not caused by burns. So he had skin slippage, apparently. Um, question, how could he not be burned but have his skin coming off? Answer, this is a result of several factors. The first factor is that Mr. Rainey's body blocked the drain after he died, causing the incoming water to pool within the shower. Second, the humidity within the shower room accelerated Mr. Rainey's body to decompose and loosen his skin. As a result of the onset of decomposition and loose skin, life support efforts such as CPR caused the loose skin to be dislodged at the points of of contact. Yeah, we've all been there. You know, you've seen it. You've seen like when people perform CPR, which is mouth to mouth, that people's skin falls off. It's terrible. Okay. Question. Is it true that Mr. Rainey's body temperature was too high to register with the thermometer? Answer. No. A nurse testified that she had difficulty trying to take his temperature from his temple as they continued to administer life-saving measures to Mr. Rainey in the medical center. Mr. Rainey's temperature was in fact taken and was 102 degrees Fahrenheit at the time. What's interesting is that a nurse actually says that she was not able to take his temperature because his temperature was too high. This is me, Katie Halper, talking, obviously not Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, the liar 
That is the state's attorney. Question, was the shower where Mr. Rainey died used by correctional officers to punish inmates and routinely used to scald inmates? Answer, the scope of our, investiga- the scope of our investigation was limited to the events surrounding Mr. Rainey's death. It is true that some inmates interviewed stated that the shower was used as a, quote, punishment to varying levels. However, all nurses interviewed advised they had never treated an inmate for burns nor nor ever received complaints of injuries from the shower. We found no records to substantiate the claimed injuries. Oh, really? That's so surprising. I'm so surprised that the nurses who um, make their salaries working at this uh, torture chamber didn't come forward to document how badly they were burned. I think, honestly, the person I hate the most of all, the, sorry to be so, is the Emmy, the medical examiner, who, it's too bad it's not included in this report, because my favorite part of the report was when she attributed his death to his schizophrenia, um, which apparently, I'm not sure how it works, but something happens where um, it, like, res- your heat, your resistance to heat, it's these people are, I'm trying to be productive and funny about it. They're just awful people and they should be in jail. That's basically it. Um, I don't know how they can sleep at night. Um, I'm impressed. It's like, you know what? I wish I had that ability. They probably don't need any Ambien. They probably have, or maybe they need tons of Ambien. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, the body, by the it's interesting because portions of the body, according to this 101-page report, which contains about, like, three sentences of truth in it, that was released by Fernandez Rundle, um, the body was... Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Portions of the, his body were reported to be read and interpreted by some medical personnel to be burns. Interesting. The body of inmate Rainey was there after transport, after he died. Um, because of the portions of his body that were reported to be read and interpreted by some medical personnel to be burns, the, t- the case was, um, Detective Sanchez continued to handle the case as, unclassi- as an unclassified death and made plans to attend the autopsy later that day. It's interesting because they didn't release the autopsy. It took them two years to, to interview witnesses. That was only after a Miami Herald investigation. Um, so Governor Scott, it's awful that you are uh, removed uh, IRMS Ayala, but you should at least pretend to have some integrity and remove Catherine Fernandez Rundle from this. Um, yeah, that's that's Florida justice for you. Can you imagine if this woman were black, by the way, if Catherine Rodriguez Rundle, if she were black and she had a son who tried to board a plane with her with pot on him? Why is this woman? I mean, I'm not I'm not I think <laughs> I think pot should be legal i think drugs should be decriminalized but that it's just such rank hypocrisy um that these people you know are are really tough on crime uh unless it's your son who's an idiot who gets on a plane with his mother and aunt with pot um yeah so again the takeaway is uh you can boil a guy to death and you can board a plane with marijuana and there's no punishment but if you decide to make the legal decision to not seek the death penalty in a case the governor of florida will come down on you and the optics are great it's a, it's a white man who's sorry guys but uh rick scott looks like an alien i don't mean to be speciesist or human uh, uh planet earthist or whatever he definitely looks like a martian and uh it's a great look for this white governor Martian governor to come down and remove the one uh, uh, African-American state's attorney from the case. Uh, Very, very good PR. Wow. I I hate this guy so much. It almost makes me forget that uh, the Democrats are awful and selling us out. And, uh, you know, we know the Republicans are evil, but but we got we got to chew gum and walk at the same time. Uh, and speaking of which, Gorsuch, Gorsuch, they're holding hearings about this guy. They're trying to confirm him for Supreme Court justice. He's this radical right winger. And let's see if the Democrats, you know, actually put the heat on and oppose his nomination. And if they don't, that's fine, except that we Democrats, uh, myself included, can never again, ever, ever, ever use the excuse. But the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court, when they're urging people to vote for the lesser of two evils. He's this radical right winger whose mother is basically evil and Gorsuch. Um, I'm not kidding. She like got fired. She was the head of the EPA under Reagan and she got fired within like 
22 minutes or 22 months or something because she was like seen misallocating the funds, like literally taking the funds away that were supposed to like be taking mercury out of the water and saving kids lives. She spent it on on like trying to to um, dismantle the EPA. And she was the first female administrator of the EPA. This is what she accomplished. She's a real feminist. I love women like this. Uh, I am a feminist, as everyone knows, but this is an interesting accomplishment. She believed that the EPA was overregulating business and that the agency was too large and not cost effective. During her 22 months as agency head, she cut the budget of the EPA by 22 percent, reduced the number of cases filed against polluters, relaxed clean air regulations and facilitated the spraying of restricted use pesticides. Guys, she's she facilitated the spraying of restricted use pesticides. She cut the total number of agency employees and hired staff from the industries they were supposed to be regulating. Environmentalists contended that her policies were designed to placate polluters and accuse her of trying to dismantle the agency. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was bad enough that she actually got fired. And she was she always looked back with a lot of fondness on the fact that she uh, uh, helped the. Uh, dismantled the agency. Um, she herself said that uh, the staff, she and her staff were, quote, so bogged down in the fight with Congress over the doctrine of executive privilege, the agency itself seemed hardly to be functioning. And Gorsuch has the most annoying voice. It's so cloying. And I honestly want to bring Antonin Scalia back from the dead, put him back on the bench so we don't have to listen to Gorsuch. I do think it's important to try and understand law according to its original understanding, public meaning. Words have meaning. So you don't agree with McCulloch about in adapting to the crisis of human affairs? No, Senator. Change. So you do agree? I just... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to answer the question. I just want a yes or no, that's all. Well, I think it takes... These are, these are complicated things that take more than a yes or no, respectfully. The Constitution doesn't change. So, for example, one of my favorite cases in this area is Jones. This guy, he's super calm and cool and collected. The best part of the Gorsuch hearing is when he was asked if he thought women could be president. And the Constitution refers like 30 sometimes to his or he uh, when describing the president of the United States. You would see that as, well, back then they actually thought a woman could be president even though women couldn't vote. I swear to God, at this moment, a demon monster took over and possessed him and took over his soul because listen to his response. Of course women can be president of the United States. <laughs> it sounds nothing like the rest of it. And it has like a, an evil villain's voice. Uh, thanks again so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Don't forget to support our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Thanks guys. See you next week.